Okay, we're live. All right, half a day todos hamzu. This is another episode of Fanatsu. I am once again your host, uh, Michael Luhan Bavakwa. This buenas and half a day todos hamzu. And so we are in, I don't know what week it is for the pan pandemic lockdown on Guam. Is it like week nine or 10 or something? 50. <laughs> I feel like uh, in terms of weeks, the, we're at rosary level right now. We should have the Fanakpu pretty soon. But uh, thank you for everyone who has tuned into Fanatsu during the pandemic. Uh, it's, it's, been a, it's been a pleasure to keep recording episodes and keep getting out information during this time. All of you who are supporting us on Patreon, especially during this time, we appreciate those of you who kept up with your donations to support Fanatsu, even as things got difficult. And we appreciate that because Fanatsu is indigenous and independent media. And at a time when, uh, a time when uh, people are stressed, people are anxious, people are worried about the future, critical conversations sometimes go away. People don't want to talk about some of these structural issues. And so one thing that we've done at Fanatsu is we've tried to continue to be that voice. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, somebody uh, messaged independent Guahan and said, so you guys aren't going to talk about decolonization anymore, right? Basically saying because of the pandemic, we shouldn't talk about these issues anymore. And we accepted that as a challenge, basically saying, reminding ourselves, no, Hungan, we should continue to talk about these things. Because whether there's a health crisis or not, our political status still affects, um, still affects certain things. And so it's been our pleasure to, to keep bringing that conversation to you. And speaking of structural issues and concerns, it's very much in that light that we bring to you today's guests and today's episode. And so we have with us today uh, representatives from the collective Paratodosit, which means, of course, for all of us. And Paratodosit is a collective which uh, emerged onto the scene at the beginning of this lockdown, um, sort of standing up for issues of uh, rent freezes, um, sort of uh, speaking on behalf of low-income families, people that are struggling during the pandemic and has also sort of evolved into taking on certain uh, sort of uh, public, uh, excuse me, uh, taking on humanitarian sort of roles in the community, doing some, some projects such as the diaper drive. And so it's really awesome to have Michael Phelps and Katie McManus with us here today. And so if you could introduce yourself, Sidus Masi Parafinato Nizu. Who first? <laughs> Oh, well, I'm uh, Caitlin. Half a day, I'm Caitlin McManus. I'm a local uh, Chimali Palawan. Um, and yeah, I'm one of the people in the group. <laughs> Half a day, I'm Michael, or some people know me as Metallic. Um, I'm also with the collective in various capacities. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Sidzus Masi. Sidzus Masi. Sidzus Masi. And so 
one of the things that's been very nice about Paratodos Hit, and if you want to tell people sort of at the start here where they can follow Paratodos Hit, where they can get information about Paratodos Hit before we get started. Yeah, so on our we have an Instagram account and a Facebook account, and you just type in para p a r a todus t o d u s hit h i t. Um, I believe the Guam posts when they posted about the diaper drive, they typed our name wrong. <laughs> they put para todus hit, but you have to yeah, no para todus hit. Yeah. So, yeah. And we're on right now just Instagram and Facebook. And working on a website. Hey, And so I do know that you are a, a flat collective, a horizontal collective, which means it's sort of a, a group of people who have shared ideas, shared goals, um, but not sort of a top, your usual top down group. And so. How did this group come about in the very beginning? Sort of what led to the conversation that started it? Dang. Um, like, I think we were all just kind of talking about these issues individually um, on our own social media, and we were talking to each other. We all know each other loosely, you know. Um, some people are friends, some know each other as acquaintances and just kind of all kind of came together, um, started discussing things together. And eventually we just kind of made a group chat. That's where it went from there. Yeah. And it's been really good to see how it's like been uh, growing more and we're doing more But um, even with the diaper drive, we're trying to take a more di um, direct approach with the next one. Um, especially because I keep getting like phone calls from people still um, since I put my phone number, um, me and Lindsay are other group member um, on the flyers for people to make donations. Most of the people calling were not calling to make donations. They were calling because they have no money. They don't even have gas to drive like to the diaper drives. And they're like, is there any way that you could deliver to us now? And, you know, and I'm getting calls every day still. And it just, I feel so bad for these people. And so um, I'm, I realized, you know, maybe we need to take a more direct approach. And, um, uh, you know, we had a lot of diapers that um, ran out. Of, we ran out of a certain size. The diaper drive, we were able to still help like almost 200, or right, over 200 families. Yeah, somewhere around there. And, um, but yeah, there was still people that came and we didn't have enough or the people that did get towards the end, they didn't get the actual size that they wanted. And um, so I, I was thinking, you know, this time we'll, I'm already taking names down and sizes and maybe um, we could just put out a flyer that I'm working on to uh, announce to the public that they can call since they're already calling me and I will take their information down and sizes. And then um, with the donations, you know, we can get, what these people actually need, specifically need. It just is more. Oh. Hello, did we lose her? It looks like we lost connection. Hopefully yeah. she comes back. Um, but yeah, she's talking about something that uh, she's been spearheading with uh, having that information down uh, and then people can call and they can actually uh, see what's needed, you know, 
and we can uh, meet that need more directly. I oh, think she's. Shoot. Hello. I don't know what disconnect is. Am I connected again now? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, though. Sorry, I don't know if that was me or whatever, but yeah. It's okay. Me. You must have Docomo. I'm just kidding. Yes, it is a Docomo. Yeah, but um, <laughs> no, we don't Docomo, but yeah. Um, just kidding, just kidding. So anyways, yeah, I was just saying, we're, I want to take a more direct approach. I want to make sure these families like really are getting what they need. And I also want to be able this time, instead of have the drive at just one or two locations, um, I want to like deliver me and other people in the group where we said already that we're willing to deliver it to the different mayor's offices in the, throughout the villages so that people who no longer have gas to drive anywhere, they could just walk to their mayor's office and pick up their package that will be, you know, we'll, we'll have their information on it. Um, yeah. Cause that was really hard to hear that. Like a lot of these people couldn't even make it to the drive because they don't have gas and they're asking to deliver. And I'm just like, Oh my God. <laughs> I can't right now. This was during the drive when the drive was already going on. And then and then now I'm still getting phone calls. And um, yeah, you know, the stimulus checks haven't even gone out to everyone. Some people that don't even need it have already gotten their second one, while some haven't even gotten theirs yet. And even some people that have gotten, it's just, it's not enough. We know that it's not enough to cover all the expenses for everything. And, yeah. you know, governor telling people, oh, just apply for food stamps. It's just, it's so mind-blowing and yeah, um, yeah I, I really hope we can help you know more people this time getting what they specifically need for their children um, and then I also um, want hopefully more I mean I want to do a drive where we can do get more cloth diapers I was talking to someone else about that because I mean in reality with everything going on we're gonna have to like lean towards a more sustainable way of living and especially if these people aren't getting money we don't know how long this is going to go on for and i, I don't want to have we don't want to have to you know tell people how to live but if they could have that option you know with the disposable and non-disposable products uh, that would be really great and i really want to be able to encourage people to do that um me myself because i'm like we can't like keep buying diapers we, we started use, um we have cloth diapers, but I need to like really practice with that with my son. And I need even myself, I need to like make that a habit because I can't keep buying diapers all the time. And a lot of people, they don't even have money to buy it. So they probably already are using cloth. I don't know what they're doing, honestly. I I don't know. But um, yeah, that's one thing I, I really want to consider is, is helping these people take a more sustainable approach. And, yeah. Anyways, yeah, those are all ideas. This is what we do. We just talk about ideas within the group. And then... Oh no, thank you. Um, I think so. You you bring up some some good and some important points because I think when when we face sort of a crisis like this, it's interesting because there's there's obvious people feel like you have to cling to the system as it is mm -hmm. because people don't have enough. Their basic needs are threatened. Yeah. So many times they feel like we have to cling closer and tighter to the system. But one of the other sort of things that happens in a crisis like that is you see the weaknesses in the system. You see how the system may not be all it's sort of built up to be or all it's hyped up oh, to yes, be. Definitely. One thing that we've seen, for example, is that in other countries that have socialized medicine, yeah. mm -hmm. uh, sort of getting getting sick 
or sort of losing, not being employed is not as frightening because the government has a guarantee on your health care. But then in the U.S. system, if you get sick and you don't have a job, you know, you basically either get no health care or you get very poor quality health care. And so we can see that as so many different countries around the world struggle with similar issues of economic downturns, lockdowns, social isolation, distancing, we can see that sort of the system that we've got on Guam, it has some issues. It has some issues. It's not sort of, uh, it's not the best that sort of, um, like so many things built up in sort of a late capitalist system, one thing goes wrong and the whole thing threaten is, it seems like the whole thing is going to fall apart. And so, um, so Matalik, I wanted to ask you sort of what kind of lessons, because Katie has already touched on some of them in terms of more sustainability in our, in our, in our daily lives, our sort of, uh, our everyday lives, but what kind of sort of things can we learn from this, um, pandemic lockdown in terms of a more just sort of economic system or social system on the island? Well, I think uh, just reflecting on what we do as a collective, like what the reason for our existence is to be more direct in taking care of these things, um, being a part of this community uh, of people and helping each other helping ourselves like it's not we're not some organization that has a bunch of professional people in it that is going to like reach out and try and dump a bunch of resources on people they don't even know um for starters uh so the collective is working people um we're trying to help other working people in guam um and specifically you know people are out of jobs right now that are working so mm -hmm. Um, I think things can, that can be learned, uh, or that we can help ourselves. Um, that's a big thing. Um, where I think we're showing people like, you don't have to be like the professional activist or a politician or someone with money and access as much as just being able to talk to your own community and make those things happen. Um, what we did with the diaper drive was entirely supported by people here, you know, and it, it was some people in the business community, but it was also just other working people, other people that were also even struggling, you know, finding a and way. only to... one politician. True. Only True. one politician donated. And I just want to uh, highlight on that. <laughs> only one. <laughs> and it was $40. True. I just want to highlight that. That's... <laughs> they, they, could really, they could really step it up, just saying. Um, oh, yeah, we could have helped a lot more uh, babies. We could have helped. I already did the math. <laughs> if, like, each senator donated at least $100, which is more than, you know, I mean, which is way less than what they could afford. Um, yeah, we could have helped almost 200 more babies. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Yep. So this is definitely within <laughs> our, uh, <laughs> our, I guess, socioeconomic class group. Mm -hmm. um, we helped ourselves. That's really what, what it's about. And we can learn from that. I mean, sustainability, decolonization, whatever you want to look at or think about, like whatever terms you want to think about that on, um, we can help ourselves. We can make things happen for ourselves. Um, and then what we're doing, looking at cloth diapers, looking at like going directly, 
you know, to each other. Like this is, this is sustainable stuff. This is community. Um, and we're doing it of necessity, but also because it just makes sense for us. Um, and another thing we talk about too, we've been talking about on social media, you know, um, we've been talking about growing our own food, uh, you know, having more of a subsistence economy, less wage labor economy. Like, obviously, the wage labor economy has not been working for us. You know, all of us uh, working class, uh, low income, impoverished, whatever word you want to use, uh, we have been working. We've been working hard. And, you know, people were still struggling before this pandemic. The pandemic hits, and then it just lays bare the fact that we just weren't having our needs met anyway, you know? Um, people want to talk about how we're all on assistance and we're all leaning on the government, whether, you know, GovGuam or the federal government or whatever, but it's because the system doesn't work to provide for us, you know? Um, people say that we're clinging so hard to the system now that we talk so badly about, but the fact of the matter is, is they've made us dependent mm -hmm. because we don't have the means mm -hmm. to begin with. You know, and this pandemic hits and we're out of work. So many people, um, of course, we're going to need that assistance, but it's still not enough. That's what we're seeing. It's still not enough. And people that are still working, the essential workers, right? They're not making enough money still either, because even though they're working and collecting that paycheck, that's how it works on Guam is we support our families, not just like this nuclear family and not the individual. We reach out mm -hmm. to all families. And if somebody's making money, you know we're gonna like try and support each other all over the place. So that money gets spread out, gets it's thinner. So even the money that you were making before is is still less, even though you're still working now. So mm. yeah. No, it's uh no, you bring up a good point there about sort of the system that we have on Guam. <laughs> we oftentimes forget it because you know it's very rare, it's very rare to find a colony that is rich because colonies tend to be poor in relation to sort of their, whoever's colonizing them, right? So then in colonies, people tend to look at the relationship with the colonizer as being a source of prosperity. But as you pointed out, it's not really a source of prosperity. It's not like the US is, is looking to train the next Elon Musk in Guam, or like, put, you know, or basically, they're, what they're really doing is sort of just extending sort of a, a social safety net out to the island but it's not necessarily one which is, is aligned with a lot of the values that we've been talking about so far here. It's not really aligned with sort of teaching people to be sustainable, teaching people to sort of protect the island and stuff. It's much more in line with sort of uh, the cheap consumeristic lifestyle, mm -hmm. you know, like a first world, late capitalist, cheap consumeristic lifestyle. And so, um, but yes, but it's uh, to, to Katie's point though, about sort of the obligation of leaders, you know, one of the things is that for your average person who's stuck in that system, you know, they, they need that, that system in order to survive. But it's really the responsibility of those who are leaders to do their best to try to get us past that system or start to sort of uh, support efforts to build our own sustainability, our own circular economies here. Mm -hmm. And so to that end, I can definitely, I can definitely, uh, do you have sort of any, any of those types of thoughts? for sort of our local leaders in terms of pushing for that type of agenda, that type of future for the island. 
Oh, for I'll sure. Just... Oh, go ahead, um, Miguel. Oh, just, do we have any thoughts about? Yeah, or or messages for elected leaders. Well, okay, uh, so their obligation to to try to get us out of a system which keeps us dependent in a certain way and doesn't sort of promote the wider interests of the community. Out of capitalism. Yeah. So one one thing, okay, I, I don't know if I can speak to that directly yet. Uh, maybe once I get talking, I can go on that. But one thing we will say is we did have experience with, with leaders here. People, even though there was only one that donated, we did get contacted by a few. Um, but one thing that, and I'm not naming names or anything. One thing that I was disappointed with was here we are a collective that's trying to do this for, you know, our, our people in need here on this island, like our working people, our impoverished people, people that need help to get through this the most. And we're talking about, specifically, we're talking about the rent and mortgage freeze, trying to get it so, you know, people are not going to get charged, uh, accrue a debt, you know over time for backed up rent or mortgage that they haven't been paying or have not been able to pay. And instead, and, and, you know, we're not lawmakers in our collective, so we don't know the language. We don't know the legalese to try and make these things happen. We're not writing the bills, you know? Um, and so when, a, when politicians reach out to us, our leaders, what we're hoping for is that they're going to create that language to try and make it happen. Mm-hmm. And it is, happen a lot of people tell us there's blocks like oh the banks are federal or whatever los angeles the city of los angeles has done it there's another city in California, i think maybe santa cruz they also did it they've, they've stopped they've stopped the accrue of debt for for rent and mortgage so you know that's it's kind of a it's a false argument to make about banks mm-hmm. and beyond that like our banks should be on board with us yep you know? um if this, if we're really, as they're saying, all in this together, you know, quote unquote, then then really they should be doing what they can to help us instead of like keep profiting off of this. But again, going back, the thing that I was disappointed with the most is when we talk about this, it was always, what about the landlords? What about the landlords? Always. And it's not to say that we want to screw over all the landlords, but when we're talking about people that cannot make payments, why is it that you ask us, what about the people that are supposed to get paid? Like, how is it that we take second place for our security in a home and shelter and food and, mm-hmm. and all these and things that we might need or want mm-hmm. during this time to be comfortable and to live and survive? Why is it that what matters most is the person that probably is not struggling with that as much, but maybe isn't even a person like we're talking about real estate agencies, you know, they're, they're companies, they're, they own multiple properties. They make tons of money. And why is it that you're more concerned about the mortgage that they're paying for their, you know, apartments or their several houses not essential instead of us. And then, and then if that's their job, you know, why is it when we're not able to work, their, their job still matters. Like if we're not working, they're not working, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? So sorry, but if there's a pause on us working, there's a pause on you working too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that of course is where we have to work out their mortgages with the banks, but I don't see how this has to be like a losing situation for, for any of us really. Yeah. Um, you just tag it on to the end of, 
the loan <laughs> and just pause it. Like that's seems pretty straightforward to me. Mm-hmm. But, and that's what other places are doing. Like you mentioned, um, like I mentioned at the public hearing, uh, LA is doing that and it's mortgages and and rent and the landlords, uh, their mortgages are on a freeze and, you know, the tenants as well, their, their rent and mortgage. And uh, I don't know, but I wonder if it has anything to do with our governor uh, owning the banks, <laughs> not wanting <laughs> to miss the bank. Pacific Star owes $32 million to <laughs> Bank of Guam, what? You're bringing up an interesting sort of point because um, what was very fascinating to me during sort of this time is that, uh, is that sort of the way that the, the governor in particular, but, but the government itself, sort of it mm-hmm. becomes the the lightning rod for a lot of things. Um, but then what's interesting though, is that it sort of takes attention away from the fact that, um, that a lot of people that are, that are pushing for things are not the ones that are suffering the most. So for mm-hmm. example, a lot of the people who are sort of the, the loudest and the angriest on social, on social media are people that have businesses and have money. You know, so some of the, the the people that are out protesting are not the ones that are actually suffering the most. They're the ones that are realtors. You know, they're the ones that own restaurants. They're the ones. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was interesting then because in in a certain way, in a certain way, um, at a time when everybody's sort of struggling, the, the sort of the the upper middle class or even the upper class sort of community get they get let out of the equation they get to say they get to act like they're struggling just like everybody else but in truth i mean so this is for me personally one thing that i was dismayed at is that i re- i heard very few even though we have sort of this tradition of enough pamaulik on guam and of mm-hmm. taking care of each other i heard so few stories about about landlords forgiving their rent or taking or taking care of their rent for people we heard stories like that in the states of different landlords forgiving rent, taking care of their people, or you know, doing this instead. I heard stories about landlords putting penalties on people, saying, "Yeah, I can't evict you, but you're gonna pay more in the long run because I'm not getting paid right now." Yeah. We we saw we saw stories of businesses donating to frontliners, but not keeping their employees paid, not taking care of their employees. So wanting to do the photo op but not wanting to sort of take care of their loyal, hardworking employees. Mm-hmm. And so that's why, um, so what, what's interesting for me sort of at a time like this is that the system, a lot of the outrage that may be directed at the government, in a certain way it could be keeping sort of a system in which the, the lower classes and the working class doesn't get a fair shake. It may, it may be keeping them in the same place. It may be protecting mm-hmm. that system as sort of the people that have the money that that as they sort of speak and then the low and then the working class sort of assumes that they're on their side when in truth they were really on their side then they then they would be forgiving the rent for them then they would be taking care of them so anyways what are your thoughts sort of on that though because at a time when there's a lot of stuff talk about sort of economic need and economic hardship we did not see a lot of economic critiques 
of the system that of the system that people are are tangled up in and the system that's treating the majority of the island very unfairly. Mikhail, you want to go first? Okay, I'll go first. Okay, so um, from what I understand, there's a lot of people that are really attached to capitalism. <laughs> like, they associate capitalism with, with the U.S. and therefore, through some means of psychoaffective attachment <laughs> to democracy and freedom and all those things. So... Um, if you put out a critique uh, that looks super Marxist, uh, where you're talking about the working class or the low income folks like needing more assistance and needing people with wealth to step in and do things, you know, for specifically giving their wealth or helping people using that wealth, it just, for them, they're like, oh, communism. And it's just like, oh, it's antithetical to freedom. That's basically what we meet whenever we give these kinds of critiques. So um, I feel like either we don't get heard because we're giving these critiques and people drown it out or find a way to keep it from reaching other people or uh, people just feel discouraged and, and don't give the critique anyway, or they try and find more subtle ways to give it and it just doesn't happen as, as clearly. Um, I feel like we're a bit more forward about this, but we're also not trying to say like we're a bunch of like communists. Or, um, really what it is, is we just care about the people of this island that are really the backbone. You know, not, we've seen none of these things work. None of it. That's one thing we've seen here and anywhere else is that the people that are making things run, working at the grocery store and doing all these things, you know, at, at the hospitals, like we're, we're working class people, you know, like we're, we're the ones oh, that. I can't see your video. Oh, I can't even hear you. Shoot. I think that's happening with yours for me too. No, no, we, we can still see you. We're both good. <laughs> I'm good. It may be her connection. I think she froze. Oh, shoot. Well, uh, yeah, so what I'm saying is, um, shoot, I lost track. But, uh, <laughs> um, I think one thing is you've got people that control essentially you know, media um, and on this island in particular, um, and you have politicians that their constituency, you know, a vital part of that is getting, you know, funds for their campaigns and for the things they do. Uh, their constituents that have money, like they tend to lean harder those ways. Um, I can say that we did we did make noise as a collective. We sent letters to the governor. We've said things on social media. Um, we've contacted politicians. We we call people out, <laughs> just like mm -hmm. did. you know, people need to contribute and actually do something instead of sitting on their laurels. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, it gets ignored vast, uh, vastly by these leaders. Um, our, our letters to the governor were completely unaddressed. No reply, never said anything about them. However, there was like some uh, passive aggressive WhatsApp thing getting forwarded around. And of course, you know, that gets addressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you remember that. Um, 
something that was made in the States and then somebody just edited it a little bit to try and fit it to uh, Guam. Yes. Yeah, you remember that, right? Oh, yeah. The governor course. addressed that. The governor addressed that, but didn't address our letters that we wrote from our community to, to her <laughs> to discuss these things. Um, and so the critique is there, but it's not getting broadcasted because we get blocked. Um, people don't want our message out there. <laughs> so that's a big reason why I think the critique is lacking because there's a lot of people that are able to keep it from getting anywhere. No, no, I can, I can definitely, I can definitely see that. It was, well, let me, was let, fast. hello. I was gonna say, let me throw, throw one more thing in there though. Go ahead. I'm losing connection. Ah, damn. Keeps being a weird on her. But, um, but this is very um, difficult for uh, the economic system as it's been brought to Guam, you know, uh, through U.S. administration. Island is you know, they they brought wage labor to us to break down our subsistence economy because they needed us to be more dependent. They needed us to assimilate into an economic system and then therefore a cultural system that was American. It was also a really good way of getting us off our land, which they wanted so badly. <laughs> mm. But um, another thing, when businesses did start coming here, you know, there was mostly Americans bringing these business, American businesses. And eventually another point when we were opened up to tourism and stuff, we had Japanese and Korean companies coming in. But there's very select few uh, families on, on island, very select few people on island locally that made that money. And we still see like, this is how it works still. Um, mm -hmm. Have a lot of foreign investors, foreign companies that are here, foreign people that come to the island and make money. And then this like locals here that are really still a part of that economy. And this pandemic still accentuates that. It still accentuates that these people who have this concentration of wealth and influence and power are still the ones keeping it by being the loudest, by having the most attention centered on their critiques and their, you know, their wants and needs and their being mm -hmm. mad, et cetera, while the rest of us don't have that access to being heard, while the rest of us don't have the access to resources and materials and money in order to survive and keep going. And you can even see that if like, they're, they say things like, oh, businesses reopen, we'll get jobs going again, you know, and people working etc we'll still be in the same situation where we're still struggling you know and and the added bonus that these business owners who don't actually interface with the public are going to be putting us working people at risk of running through like a second wave of the sickness you know we're the ones that are going to be dealing with people face to face we're the ones that are going to be at risk for possibly getting infected you know so not only are we back in the same situation where we're still making the same amount of money and still and still not making it, well, they're still making their money, but we're also put at risk. They'd rather put our bodies and our lives on the line to keep their company making profits than to help us. Like, that's all I hear. That's all I see over and over. And it just keeps that system that's been brought here from the U.S. That's not enough of <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a, 
That's a very good point. It's it's very interesting because we see that weird sort of uh, splitting of the narrative in a lot of the media coverage, where the media coverage talks about sort of the plight of the low income of those who are struggling, those who have been laid off. I keep losing connection. But at you the think, same time, but at the same time, the media doesn't want to talk about sort of the, the the structure of the economy, the structure of society, and the media definitely doesn't want to sort of. So that's why um, what's what's interesting for me though is the way that in a time like this, um, the government and in particular sort of the governor becomes sort of the catch-all for a lot of the sort of the criticism. As when in fact, when in fact, um, a lot, because, you know, so when in fact a lot of it has, some of it has to do with sort of what the governor is doing, but then some of it has to do with the media not wanting to attack sort of the, the middle and upper class, yeah, not wanting to sort of reveal their sort of uh, their place in this dynamic, you know, because, um, you know, I had a friend who who is a business owner, you know, and, and, and he was talking to, who, who's a local business owner, and he was talking to other local business owners who have, you know, you know, like 20 or 30 employees. You know, and it was interesting because as they were discussing, you know, he proposed that they, that what they should do is they should try to keep their employees like at, at like half pay or 25% of their pay or something like that. You know, help them or like give them, just like find a way to give them money for their groceries at least during this time. And it was funny because he said that most of the other business owners all said, no, that's the government's job. The government needs to take care of them. And so, but the, but the issue though is, is that while you can attack the government for that, Mm -hmm. the media will not reveal sort of how the, the business communities sort of role in that, that sort of enough amount like is not, is not just because you know, the government intervenes or the government is supposed to do something when culturally, like uh, people don't or society doesn't have norms, right? People don't follow certain norms as they should. So the government intervenes and says, this is the way you have to, this is how your exchanges will be regulated, mm-hmm. right? This is how you will are supposed to interact with each other. But it's just so interesting that the media can, can act like it's championing the interests of the poor and the downtrodden when it won't want to really talk about sort of the system that keeps a lot of those people at the bottom. Instead, it'll want to sort of blame like the government is when the government is definitely at certain points siding with business interests, but the media doesn't want to talk about how, you know, talk about sort of the, 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 the system that we live in, which keeps a lot of people poor. Yep, and that's a great reason for why decolonization is a very important topic right now throughout all of this, and why we need to learn how to live without, yeah, without depending on a government that can't be trusted. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah, I think, uh, like you were saying earlier, it shows like the, the weak points in how things work, and I think that if they were to illuminate these structural issues, they would be afraid that, you know, something radical might happen. <laughs> no. Um, I mean, just honestly, like that's, I think what it comes down to all the time 
is if you show the problems like honestly and openly shed light on structural issues that people are going to say, wait a minute, this isn't just because people are lazy or wait a minute, this isn't because, uh, you know, people are just stupid or Mm -hmm. the system based on merit, but wait, it's not actually merit. There's so many other things that go into this. Like it's not just whether you're good at something or deserving. It's not whether you're a hard worker or not. Um, it's structurally set up. So some people have to do worse than others. A lot of people have to do worse than others. So the other ones can make more money so they can be on the top. That right there would be a lot of people saying, wait, I'm on the bottom (laughs) because you need me to be on the bottom. Not because I deserve to be here. Not because Mm -hmm. I'm stupid or lazy or any of that. Like just because I need to be for you to get a foot up. You know, like, I think people just have a problem with that. Like, I mean, I do. Like, who who wouldn't have a problem with that? Like, mm-hmm. you need to be in an inferior position just so you can better. And a lot of people in an inferior position, like, I mean, that would be a radicalizing thing for a lot of people. Um, yeah. It is interesting, though. Yeah. The One of the things about capitalism is that it's got great promoters and great marketing got a lot of hype so that we you're supposed to focus on sort of all the benefit all the benefits and the successes of capitalism but you're not supposed to sort of look at all of the ones that sort of yeah how it's kind of like a you know, it's like a casino you know you focus on you got big pictures you have the big picture of the guy that won a million dollars at the, at the progressive slot machine mm-hmm. you don't have a million pictures of the people that lost a whole bunch on the same slot machine yeah Definitely true. You know, uh, actually, this reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend recently um, where we were talking about debt and how necessary debt is in like capitalist systems, right? Um, and it's not just because it keeps the economy going either. So there's a whole other side to debt that I don't think a lot of people realize or talk about or think about. And that's that it proves, proves, quote unquote, in a way the merit that the idea that there's a merit-based system. So in, in capitalism, people that have money and succeed um, are kind of seen as good people in general. You know, they're seen as hardworking, they're seen as smart, they're seen as probably philanthropists, etc. You know, like they're nice. Um, whereas people that don't have a lot of money are usually attributed things like, oh, they're they're lazy, they're not smart, they're uneducated. They got drug problems, you know, they they got uh, domestic violence problems, all sorts of things. Like that is put on, Mm. you know, live working class or in poverty or any of those things, right? So good, good, uh, good, rich, bad, poor, right? So with a debt system, uh, people that work and can pay off their debts are making their way toward being good. It is good to be able to pay a debt because it means that you're hardworking and that you know, when you pay that off, you're showing your worth. Um, But speaking on the structural issues, not everyone is able to do that no matter how hard they work. Mm -hmm. And not everybody is able to do that because of a lot of other circumstances. So you have some people, and this is like the middle class, that are able to make those payments on their debts and stay above poverty and look like they're succeeding look like they're doing well and that they're becoming good people and that proves the merit 
right? It proves the merit-based system where if you work hard, you're going to succeed. And then people in the same position or not the same position, people that also have debts, maybe the same ones, are working just as hard, but they're stuck in a different situation or, you know, their jobs don't pay as well. They have medical debts, et cetera, et cetera. Like they can't pay those things and they're just not part of this. Like they're not doing well in the merit-based system. And so it just kind of like what you have is two different people that are just drowned in debt by a capitalist system mm-hmm. and some are going to be able to make it and some aren't. I guess pretty much it. <laughs> Katie, did you have some thoughts on that or? No, I agree with everything you said. Um, I mean, there's even homeless people that have jobs, uh, but are just not able to afford housing because the cost of living is so damn high. And I almost was in that situation when I was a single mom of three kids and I was uh, working as a full-time um, non-certified teacher. Um, I mean, I was still doing everything that all the other teachers that are certified did, um, but I was getting paid only $14 an hour and I was trying to pay for it, my house and my car and I had my kids and everything. And um, I actually still had to get a second job at a bar. And then I was told by my boss at um, the principal that I couldn't work that job while being a teacher. So then I had to go back to just being a a non-certified full-time teacher and I couldn't afford I couldn't uh, afford the cost of living I had to move back in with my parents that's how stressful it was if I didn't have relatives here I would have been homeless and um, that's the reality for a lot of people on this island and people don't realize that yeah absolutely I was I was working and homeless in the states uh, because I couldn't afford to get on my feet right away Uh, for four months I was homeless there and it's more expensive to live here where I was living over there. Like you can get the same place. Like if you were paying for a place here for like 800 to 1200 bucks back there, it's like 400 to 600. <laughs> it was literally like half the price of living in Guam, you know? And mm-hmm. no, the funny part too, is the wage there is higher. The minimum wage there is higher. And I was working and I was still homeless for months. So you can imagine here, you know, if you don't have the family, to, to help to fall back on you're you're in a lot of trouble yep. this is expensive here and it doesn't pay as well <laughs> that's what most people right now are doing is they're depending on relatives like um my, my cousins my cousin both her and the boyfriend were um gig artists so they have nothing right now and they have a child and so they're <laughs> depending on you know all the relatives to help with you know their needs and diapers and and stuff like imagine all the people who who it maybe if they have relatives, their relatives have nothing to, you know, and our governor's just telling people to apply for food stamps and depend on one stimulus check. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a lot of hurting people right now, hurting financially. So community is the best thing right now that can help, that we can do to help each other. We need yes. to get back to the anaphimalic community lifestyle. If you are privileged and you have enough money to pay for your bills and then order stuff on Amazon, you have enough money to donate to a mutual aid collective. And you should be doing that if you're privileged. And it, you know what? I was telling my sister the other day that, sorry, I'm just like emotional. I was, I was telling my sister yesterday that um, I was really irritated because I have friends on a chat group who are all um, getting paid right now because um, they have jobs that are 
you know, paying paying them when they're on leave or whatever, or one of them is still working. And um, they know about this group, Paratotus Hit. They, I shared it with them. I said, please, can you donate? Um, and then uh, when we had the list that came out with all the people that donated, I didn't see any of their names. But they did want to make time to set up a boat trip for for this weekend, for next week. And they wanted to, you know, set up a time where we can all hang out because supposedly now the virus isn't as serious and we can hang out again and spend money. And And I was just... I couldn't stomach it. I couldn't even respond. I was like, there are people that are financially hurting. You know, I'm a part of this group. And I know some people, their priorities are just different. They're privileged and they have different priorities. And they can see that the community is hurting. And you can tell them about these mutual aid collective programs and that you need them to donate. And they will just, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) ignore it. It's frustrating. uh, I mean, it's... uh, no, thank you for sharing uh, for sharing that. And it is um, it is interesting, sort of, because one thing that is really coming out in this conversation is that um, is that sort of the system that we have that sort of governs the basic things about our life in Guam. You know, it's 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 pretty colonial. It's not really meant to reflect the values that people here take seriously. It's not meant to help the majority of the people. Now, every society struggles with those sorts of things, right? But one of the things that that a society is supposed to do is they're supposed to be able to, to decide what is, in a sense, sacred or what is the priority. And one of the most, most important things that a society can do is, uh, is determine sort of, yes, what is beyond money and exchange. So what will, what will a society determine that you should get as a right of your existence, as a right of your membership in a community, right? And so one of the things that, that we see here is we see that on Guam, there's strong cultural elements. There is, there's a desire to take care of each other, a desire to provide, a desire that sort of everyone should have a shot. But the systems that we have are the casino slot machine systems of the United States. I mean, you, you look at sort of what you look at Canada versus the United States. The Canadian proposal was keep everybody employed and the government will give you 80% of all your employees' wages. Don't, don't lay them off. Keep everybody employed. But the U.S. system is, yeah, lay them off. They can get unemployment. We'll throw money at them, $1,200 at a time. You know, you know we'll, we'll do this. But everyone gets shoved of the working economy and then they have to find their way back in it's it's a crapshoot it's like gambling they don't allow us to cockfight but it's like a big freaking game show it's a reality show the american economy Mm -hmm. but that's a but then what happens here in guam is that we have these systems in which our culture becomes a buffer protecting people from the very systems in our lives and but the thing is that the culture is losing the culture loses because unless you're willing to change those systems, it's it's going to really be about how much money your family has to resist that unless you start moving towards sustainability. But not everybody, but, but it's a road in a sense that you can't always go back from. I mean, even for me, I am not somebody who lives close to the land, but I don't have any land. In fact, I live in an apartment complex. So I don't have the ability to really garden or anything like that. And for a lot of people that would want to sort of live in a more sustainable way, 
if if you have if your family's sort of story has come to a point where you don't have any land, what can you really do? You know, what can you really do? And so communities can come together, the government can do something to support it. But one thing that we've definitely heard in this conversation though is that um and I know that there was a question about it also is sort of in the in the live stream was that how is that many of the things that sort of many of the systems that we suffer under they stay in place because people that are in power or the people who have are the closest to those in power um they make money off of those systems rent doesn't have to be ridiculously out of control on guam but if your chances are good if you're a senator or if you're part of sort of the middle and upper middle class upper class on guam chances are good you're renting out a bunch of places yeah and so you're making money off of that system you don't want to see anything put into place which would mess with your cash flow same with issues such as the things that we buy you know why is it that i always remind people why is it that recycling is so terrible on guam well, because a lot of families and a lot of people make money off of this economy in which you just bring something in and then you just throw it away mm-hmm. and so if you want anything to change you have to start attacking those sorts of things and some people make a lot of money off of those things but everyone else sort of has to deal with the with the fallout from that and so matsalaka i know you've got thoughts on that on <laughs> and everything that i just said and everything that i just said i mean <laughs> you were not in your head i know you got thoughts yeah well, i mean i was agreeing with a lot of stuff um yeah i mean that's a reality for a lot of people not having land not having the ability to do the things that are often talked about as being sustainable um and i think that's because a lot of uh, what drives the the green capitalist sense of sustainable is is ridiculously middle and upper class um you know buying all these quote unquote reusable products uh it's expensive to to eat the food they have you know or if you're going to grow things you need land um it, it's expensive to to put renewable energies on your house like it, it's mm-hmm. it's consumer based and it's still very much middle and upper class yes um those are things to strive for but you can do those things better together um and if you're in a situation where you're living in apartments you don't have access to land or maybe your land is is poisoned by you know whatever dumping the US military might have done um you can't use that land uh we can lean on each other i think that's something that we keep forgetting because we've we've been made to forget over and over with mm-hmm. this visualist, you know, capitalist system where you have to focus on you 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 get yours. Um even our families, you know, people more are more focused on their nuclear families instead of, you know, the clan family. Um but the fact of the matter is is if we realize and remember, you know, that we're a group, we're a community, you know, uh we can do these things together. You know, if somebody has land man make it accessible to everyone you know if we're if we're growing food like supply each other you know like that's how these things are going to get done community garden if we lower if we lower our sense of 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 the capitalist in ourselves if you start to say you know me making money first is not the priority maybe me taking care of my community is 
maybe, you know, this island takes the priority over my ability to travel, you know, like we have to start rooting ourselves in, in our communities, in each other. And that's really what our mutual aid collective is, is really trying to do. And hopefully people are, are being inspired by that. Um, that is just connect with each other mm-hmm. and help where we're at, not in some like hopeful future place where everybody's got like their renewable, whatever the crap, you know, right now where we are, you know, in the apartments, in the tin house, in, you know, wherever you are in the village, out, out in the boonies, you know, we need to connect together and we need to build a system independent of, of this system that exists now, you know? And yeah, I'm using those words on purpose. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Amen. Katie, do you have, Oh, you know, with apartment, uh, you talked about um, growing food and how you're in an apartment now. Well, I just started, me and my boyfriend started, um, we're planting potatoes and spinach and stuff because thank God for YouTube. (laughs) Learn that you know there's certain foods that you can actually grow in your apartment and stuff. Yes. But um, of course you could get way more with land. But you actually can do, you can, hi, <laughs> you can grow enough in your apartment to feed yourself. Okay. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna throw something else out there too. That you bring up a, a really good point, and that is, uh, learning space you have, maybe even subverting space. So there's an idea. That if we're talking about, so, okay, so creating our own system, our economic system, is basically what we're talking about. You know, bringing back to life that subsistence economy and, and a community mm-hmm. way of life, right? Uh, where we're not prior, prioritizing money. And, and uh, that's, that's basically sabotaging, you know, the current system. Yeah. <laughs> Saying, hey, you know, we're going to find a way around you. Well, mm-hmm. speaking of growing food, uh, there's a thing called guerrilla gardening that I really think people should look up. So guerrilla gardening is the idea that you take public space that may not necessarily be designated for gardening and you plant edible plants. You plant like fruit trees. Those are great. So say there's like a little patch of land somewhere, you know, the urban sprawl of our villages where no one's growing anything. And it's not necessarily anybody's land. What if you plant limai or mango or autis or something there? Just harvest that at any point when it's ready. You know, if you plant your sidewalk along there mm-hmm. or out in front of your place, you plant a bunch of green onions just for anybody to take or, you know, in a parking lot somewhere, just basically wherever there's space, plant it, <laughs> whether it's legal or not. <laughs> hey, maybe our group can start that. Maybe we can start that like a... I'm okay. down. <laughs> Go gorilla plant everywhere your, in your village. Exactly. Well, it could be a nice way to get things started. Because I think, um, yeah, because I think that's one thing that, uh, one thing that we can definitely see is that, um, because if we look at Guam history, for example, you know, your average tomorrow about 70, even 60 years ago, didn't really give a crap about what the government was doing because they kind of took care of themselves for the most part. 
what we've seen, though, of course, is that the power of government in lives has grown as the government provides more services. But as people get more of a sense of their identity from the government and as sort of a, there's a greater sense of dependency on the government and so on. And so I, I like what's being sort of described because one of the things one of the things for us to think about, especially because this is a podcast for independent Wahan, is do these values should should we try to think about how to instill these values into policies that the government promotes or programs, or is it better to just start with the community and have the community sort of do it and then the government follow eventually? Or what are your thoughts on that? Is it better to try to fight so that you push leaders? you push leaders to sort of follow these examples or is it better for the community just to do it and then the leaders will follow eventually? Both. I, I mean, I think doing both is uh, important. I mean, at least right now, you know, like we, I mean, we do, it would be more helpful if we can get our leaders, you know, to be on our side and do what we're asking. But we also, yeah, like you're saying, we don't want to completely depend on them. And, you know, we still have to keep the community support going. Um, I mean, that's pretty much what we're doing right now. Our group is like with, with both, but, but yeah, like <laughs> what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I definitely think we can do it without leaders. So about doing everything possible. So we are doing both. Um, and we think people should do both. Uh, communities should just do it on our own. We should take you know, our initiative to do for ourselves and not rely on people that have consistently shown that they're unreliable. Mm -hmm. um, but we can still pressure them. We can still yeah. push and hope that they follow our lead. Um, mm -hmm don't think it's going to be the kind of thing where it's top down. I don't think we're going to convince leaders to take this position for us. And then they're going to create programs and initiatives to help it along. Don't think that's going to happen. Um, it's going to be more like what our collective, you know, is trying to model. And that's that we do it together. We do it equally across a flat plane where we're all in this together. Um, where everyone can be heard and people just do this themselves. Um, that, that's what we're trying to show here is that mm -hmm. you can do it. Um, we're, we're all just regular people. <laughs> like none of our uh, holding office or high influence or have a bunch of money. Like we just went for it. It's exactly it. You just do it. I actually heard that there was some people kind of shocked about how we just kind of came out of nowhere and just started making things happen. Um, we, we kind of skipped this whole chain of command, this whole hierarchy process that happens with nonprofits and with activist groups and politicians, et cetera. And we just said, we're just going to do this. And that's that. <laughs> Start on um, WhatsApp. <laughs> Yeah, we, we just we just <laughs> Instagram. Yeah. So we use whatever tools we had available to us and just started making it happen. And that's what I really think. Communities just do whatever they have available. They use whatever they have available to them and just start doing it just in any way possible. 
Yeah, and that's why I always say, imagine if more people, like my privileged friends that didn't donate, imagine if more people did this and came together. It's just a couple of us. How much is, how many people are in our group? Well, I mean, our collective is pretty loosely based. I think roughly there's maybe six people, but people just do what they can when they can. So, yeah, I, yeah, I think roughly there's like, around six. We're growing. Mm-hmm. And we, we were still able to help over almost about 200 families or over to, over 200 families. And yeah. I mean, if, if everyone had that mindset that, you know, we're capable of helping every single person on this island, if we do our part and we don't have to do a whole lot, just if everybody did their part, you know, it would just be great if everybody could do that or at least a majority. But, um, yeah. <laughs> I, I'd like to add something. To so so <laughs> something with our collective is um, we're uh, people have found it difficult because we're not really like presenting ourselves as, as representatives or leaders of a group. Um, for the most part, our, our uh, I guess, membership, if I wouldn't even call it that, the people involved in our collective, we don't broadcast our identities make ourselves the face of anything um and that's twofold i think i think one because we're not telling people they need to join our organization and that organization is supposed to be some sort of flag bearer like our collective is going to make everything happen for everyone really it's just a model it's just to say anybody can do this if you get together you can do anything and you can have your own you can do whatever you want you know, and really what that's about too is the face of, I think this was said on uh, Twitter, uh, uh, Siobhan McManus, actually, I think your sister, Katie, <laughs> she said on Twitter, like, who else should be the face of decolonization or of liberation, you know, than working people, impoverished people on this island? The people that really, really struggle every damn day and because of colonization, you know, um, who else but but us, you know, and and not just like a group, not us, like the group, you know, but us as the community of, of working peoples, like we should be the ones that are really leading this, you know, our voices should be should be broadcasted out. And if we're the ones that are doing this work within our communities, taking the initiative upon ourselves to be uh, self-sufficient and to support each other outside of any sort of uh, colonial economic system or political system, like that's leading the way. And I think people will see it. So, mm. yeah. No, thank you. I think um, we've got, we've got some comments. We've got some comments and some questions. And so, but um, this is a great conversation. And so interestingly related to, we have a question from Manny Cruz, Manny Cruz, who's, who's currently getting his PhD in Aotearoa. And so he says, what's fascinating, and he was, of course, the, the founder of the Fanatsu podcast, and so now he's back. Uh, what's fascinating to me about Para Todus Hit, as opposed to Independent Guahan, is that the focus is on mutual aid and working class struggle and not political theory and international politics. 
Do you think activism on Guam needs more focus on material outcomes for lower socioeconomic classes on island? So what do you think? What are your thoughts on that? You want to go first? No, you go okay. first. So, um, yes, I think that when we focus on, and, and again, I do think it's important, like I was saying earlier, okay, I think it's important that we have pressure politically and, and on the proper channels to make things happen, right? Because what it comes down to is eventually you do need that support follow suit. Like if, if what we do is constantly like seen as outside the realm of, of legality, whether it's illegal or not, but if it's not given so, some sort of uh, proper place in society, then We'll we'll continue to struggle because we'll have things set against us. I see that way with like with like a so like self determination, decolonization, independence. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't push the proper political channels to be, to be seen as independent. Then we're going to have an issue regardless of how independent and sufficient we become. Outside, uh, I do feel like we still there's still largely missing a critique and a push for you know, working class people in decolonization stuff here. Um, I feel like it's largely ignored because a lot of the focus gets pushed on going the political route, going through the proper channels. Um, and there's not enough people pouring back working people that would make the body of that movement. Um, mm-hmm. It has gained a lot of ground. I feel like it's gained a lot of ground with very like academic kind of peoples. Um, and, uh, it's not exclusively, it's exclusively a middle-class thing, but it's very middle-class to be able to go to college and to be academic educated. It does, we, and the working classes don't understand these things. I think that's another thing. I think like, because we don't go to college, we don't understand these things. We really can grasp it. Maybe we cannot speak the same jargon as you, but we understand what the hell's going on. You know? mm-hmm. And so if you direct things our way, like in that material sense of what's going on, talking about structural things, and we'll understand, you know, if decolonization starts talking about the way, and I know we do sometimes in independence, it still gets talked about, but if the focus switches to how colonization has materially created conditions, you know, structurally for us to be at a disadvantage, um, I feel like the focus on a disadvantage politically is easy to talk about and maneuver around, like, oh, well, what about this tit for tat? What about this benefit you get despite this drawback? You know, mm-hmm. whether or not, you know, uh, colonization really is bad, just political legal stuff. But if you're looking at the structural issues for those of us that make up the large body of people on this island and how colonization has really screwed us over um, and continually in a very real way in our lives makes us you know, suffer, um, and to, to not do, to not do well, you know, um, I think that that really would, uh, change the game. I think that would really cause a strong pull toward, you know, decolonization, self-determination, mm. whatever the people might decide upon, you know, um, I think there would be less of a, a discussion about whether we should have a vote or not. I think there'd mm. be less of 
discussion about whether we have an inequitable relationship and if status quo is something that we should stick with. Like, I think it would go out the window, you know, and no matter how loud the business like on Guam wants to get, if you've got a bunch of people who are like, yeah, man, I've been getting screwed over, you know, they're not going to listen to that. <laughs> We're going to decide for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Katie, do you have some thoughts on that or? No, I agree with everything you said. Okay. All right. <laughs> Thanks. So another question, and this is, um, so in an independent Guahan, how would we prevent officials from becoming so influenced by their own economic self-interests, which perpetuates the voice of the low-income working class falling on deaf ears. And so speaking then about how if we became independent, how could we do things differently to make sure that sort of there's that, um, because I know that for many people, this is um, this is something that re- that gets them, that makes them hesitant to any talk about political status change because they there is this idea that as a territory, a colony now, all of the worst things are being restrained by our status. And that if you were to unleash and become something different, like independent, then everything would just become worse. Everything would become worse. And so when I was doing my master's thesis research about like almost 20 years ago, it was interesting because everyone would argue at that time in terms of like Carl Gutierrez, because Carl Gutierrez was associated in some people's minds with corruption. Mm-hmm. So they would say that if we became independent, then Carl Gutierrez would take over the island and become like a, t- a dictator and a tyrant. <laughs> People sometimes said it about Eddie Calvo, that if, he, if we became independent, Eddie Calvo and the Calvo family would run the island. And people say it now about Lou, that if we became independent, Lou would run the island like a dictatorship and she would control everything. And so... Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Because I think there's a legitimate concern right there, but I think that part of it is also um, sort of a, I don't know how you colonizing hysteria or something or paranoia. Yeah. I mean, we'd have to have the right leaders, right? And we definitely don't have the right leader right now. I mean, I don't want to get too political, but I mean, she's made it very clear. She didn't listen to our letters. She never responded to our letters. That's my whole thing. Um, yeah, she was able to respond to a WhatsApp comment <laughs> or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I could see that we definitely would need the right leaders in place if we were to decolonize and be independent. And it's just about finding those, I guess, maybe based on their actions instead of just what they're saying, their ads or whatever. But yeah, I don't know, Michael, you want to say something? I have some ideas that people might not like. Um, and I'm going to go really middle of the road here. If, you, if anybody knows my per- personal politics, then they know that I'm middle of the road. <laughs> but um, uh, so I know this is something that's arguable, but I really feel like uh, if we make it illegal for them to accept uh, private campaign funds, uh, donations of any kind whatsoever, um, I feel like if our elections were funded and run, if they created spaces for um, candidates to espouse their platforms or what they want or what they're going to do, 
And those candidates have to show up to those spaces in order to participate. Uh, no advertisements. Uh, people had to engage with it directly and therefore engage with the candidates directly. We could avoid um, both smear campaigns and lionization campaigns. Um, we could avoid people being able to uh, broadcast themselves more than others. Uh, so sometimes people vote just because they know a name. Uh, they know the name and other names. You know, they look at a list and they're like, well, I don't know anybody else on here except this. Um, I feel like that's something we could avoid um, if everything is literally just taken out of the private sphere. Um, I know it's impossible because you're going to be thinking, well, what about family interests? You know, it's a very real thing here. If you have people that are related to a candidate um, and their businesses are going to have the most say, yeah. right? That's a very real fear. And to be honest, I don't really know how to get around that um, because uh, it's something we talk about. It is it's kind of cultural <laughs> to look out for your family, for your clan, right? Um, so it's something that's difficult. This is what happens when we try and keep American-style politics on Guam. Um, we might actually have to change things so we have Guam-style politics. Uh, and I have no idea how to do that systemically. <laughs> um, I'm, not, I'm not in that field of study. I'm, I'm not someone that about those things. I mean, um, Papa, do you know how our ancestors did it when they chose a chief? Yeah. Do you know how that worked? Is it there like a, any history on that? Well, so you would inherit you would inherit leadership in some in many instances, right? Because if you were the oldest, yes. But but also families would choose new Magalahi and Magahaga. If mm -hmm. people were if the family felt like they weren't doing a good job, they would select a new one based on. And so one of the things, and this is this is what's a uh, you know there's indigenous models of leadership that could be followed, and what um what Maget is talking about is is one way of looking at it, right? Is that um is to is to focus less on the spectacle of it and the craziness of it and make it really boring, <laughs> where it's boring. just about it's just about you go you talk you listen and you have a conversation. It's not about sound bites. It's not about the fl whatever's flashiest. It's not about whoever has the nicest campaign sign. And mm -hmm. some countries do that. Some countries have publicly financed campaigns. Some countries have an election period where you can only have ads for about a few weeks. You can only campaign for a very short period, and that's it. You're not allowed to campaign before that or after that. So mm -hmm. it's focused. It's not like this. But, but for the United States model, it's very much about the spectacle. It's like a Coliseum sort of match. You know, It's like arena battles. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, but... So just one thing that I wanted to, to mention in thinking about that, though, is that electing bad leaders does not mean, or electing leaders that you don't like does not mean that you shouldn't have the right to elect your own leaders and decide your own destiny. Yeah. If that was the case, then what would happen is that a lot of countries who have elected shitty leaders should have their democracies revoked. Or that they should they should go back to being a colony or a territory. I mean, if that's the case, then maybe the United States should become a, a colony of Britain again for a while until they figure their shit out. Yeah, it'll be Brexit, not Brexit. Because, because that's the that's that's one thing that we forget is it's not an issue of how if you're a democracy, then it is number one about the system and it is number two about the people. 
And democracies are not all the same. The United States ha is shown to have a fairly corrupt democracy it's because the laws are, are built in such a way so that you can go from being a politician to going and then making a lot of money in whatever industry you used to represent or have oversight over. It's a system in which the rich can keep getting rich, the powerful can keep getting rich, and that's the same system we have here. Other governments that are democracies have shown that there's better ways of trying to regulate that, but it means giving up this idea that because America is attached to us, it's the best way to be. America's not the least corrupt country in the world. There's a number of countries in Latin America and in Europe which are considered to be less corrupt, and in Asia too, which are considered to be less corrupt because they have put into their constitutions and they have put into their laws anti-corruption statutes. Whereas you look at the United States, you look at the United States, the, like, and the United States is incapable of doing simple things like that to sort of address corruption. And so our democracy in Guam is very much similar to that of the United States. And so we shouldn't get into, I don't know, I have my own sort of feelings on this because I think it's better to vote for somebody because you're related to them as opposed to voting for somebody because they look good in their picture. I think it's, yeah. even, it's even better to vote for somebody because you're related to them as opposed to voting for somebody because you like their sound bites. But that's me because the sound bite that a politician give you, gives you is probably has little to do with the type of leader they are. So even that alone doesn't give you a good sense of somebody. Well, I'm, I'm going to agree with you. Uh, I definitely think it's better. Because if you're voting for someone that you're related to, um, they're at least, A, like beholden to you. They're accountable to you. And if you're electing them because they're your family, they are probably going to do things to help you out because you're family, right? Um, and to their greater family as well. And maybe that plays into what people perceive as corruption on Guam, but it can also directly translate into taking care of your community. So so here's here's an example, like, uh, maybe we do away with this legislative body of floating politicians that are elected to, you know, to, to that position. What if instead we have uh, delegates from every village that make up that body, you know, and then you have people that are, are coming out of the villages, out of their families, it's, uh, you know, and if it's, if it's out of the village, you know, you're probably related to everybody anyway. <laughs> but I'm saying village, not municipalities. Sending love out to uh, my my homies in Malolo. <laughs> <laughs> you you are your own village. But so I mean, yeah, it's. I think part of it is is our sense of community. For me, it's our sense of community. It doesn't mean so. It doesn't mean that you vote for like just because somebody's related to it doesn't mean they're going to be the greatest leader in the world. But I would yeah. argue yeah. that voting for somebody because you're, you know them as family may be better than voting for somebody just because you like their sign. Yeah, yeah. You know, because as a family, and, and, and you bring up a good point there about pressure on leaders, is that just because you're related to them doesn't mean you have to agree with everything they say. Uh, yeah, and, in fact, and in fact, having a close-knit democracy doesn't mean that everything sucks. And in fact, it could mean that things are better because you can push in a close-knit democracy for things to be better. 
Whereas you can't really do that in a large scale democracy. You know, I always tell people, if you went, if you got, you could get a hundred thousand people to march for something in the United States Capitol. That doesn't mean anything's going to change. You could get a hundred people on the right issue in Guam and you could get change on that. It's yeah. the beauty of having a small knit, close knit democracy and people instead complain about it when in truth, it gives your average person a lot of power to influence and to affect change. But instead, there's too much sort of lamenting about how much it sucks. Mm -hmm. Anyways, that's my perspective. So, okay, so here's another question, because we're all just about out of time. Dispense of the comments to my guy. My computer's ready to die. I might relocate. <laughs> so does you were, okay, Dispense, this is for the future of Paratodos hit. You were born during the pandemic, but does the group plan on continuing the work afterwards? And what kind of uh, stuff can we see from your group in the future? Hell yes, we're going to try and keep doing stuff. <laughs> I don't think the problems are going to stop when the pandemic's over. I think there's going to be a lot of problems, more problems. I mean, yeah. we know about the debt accumulating. That's one of the things that we discuss. We don't want people... Um, having to deal with accumulated debt when they're not even working, um, you know, like why just, that's why we're asking for the rent and mortgage freeze. And so if that doesn't happen, then we're going to continue after this to make sure people aren't evicted and stuff because they can't pay their debt and et cetera. So, yeah. Yep. We're definitely going to keep working. And if you, anyone wants to give us any ideas, <laughs> you know, throw it out to, or, you know, talk to our group feel free we're just a bunch of regular yes, people coming up with ideas and how we can help our community so feel free to let us know hit us up on yes. instagram or facebook absolutely yes so that's plenty of thing um i think again to emphasize um the point that i was making though that you can do these things on your own too um of course, we're going to keep going. We want to keep doing things as a collective. We want to keep so, like doing mutual aid uh, to support our community, support each other. Um, and then also we want to hopefully inspire other people to do the same. Um, so basically, if this collective ever were to dissolve in any way, guarantee another one would pop up. Guarantee people would still be doing things. Um, but I think that's one of the important things about keep going, keeping going for us as we want other people to see that this is a sustainable thing you keep doing. It's not a flash in the pan. This wasn't a single diaper drive, you know, like really pushing for these things um, where we're sending letters out. We're talking to each other in our communities. We're raising material resources for each other. Um, and it, of course, will morph into something else, you know? Uh, maybe we're gonna raise funds for other things, or maybe, you know, we'll do food drives or plants or whatever, you know? Maybe we'll start putting out models for like what we're talking about, like guerrilla gardening or how to, how to garden in your, like, things like that. Um, and it's not gonna be, I, I hope not, I don't think it's gonna be your typical like uh, Instagram influencer type thing where it's like, Ooh, look at this pot I made that I'm growing a succulent in. <laughs> Inability. Like, no. Like, we're talking about feeding feeding ourselves. 
beating each other, like not in a trendy manner, you know, uh, we're not going to try and do metal straws. <laughs> like however <laughs> it could be, that's not what we're- We don't even need the metal straws. <laughs> you don't even need a straw, to be honest. Like we're trying to reach, we're trying to reach to the next level of critique here. <laughs> Like, just use a coconut shell there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sidrus Masi. And remind people again where they can follow you and where they can get more information. Hello? I'm sorry, say that again. Re uh, remind people where they can follow you or get more information. Oh, um, Paratodus it, P-A-R-A, Paratodus, T. O-D-U-S hit H-I-T um, on Instagram and Facebook. And Paratotus hit means all of us because we're yeah. doing this for all of us. Yeah. All of us. Sidus Masi. Hey, Sidus Masi, no hamzuna dos, but if enough to me to Paul Gunai, who go for gradesi, who go for gradesi nai quintus mezzo. I appreciate you joining and then uh, participating in the conversations. I appreciate all of you watching as well. Please take care of yourself and be safe. And tune in next week for another episode of Fanatsu. Adios, esta aquí. Adios, esta aquí. Adios.